0: this morning, I hope you do have your Bibles turned with me to Psalm 129. Uh, Psalm 129, it is uh, um, an interesting psalm to turn to this morning. I realize on the first Sunday of Advent, um, this psalm might be an interesting one to turn to, but this is where the Lord has put us in our continuing through the series of songs for the journey, uh, these psalms of ascent. Now we're on Psalm 129 and As I come to this psalm this morning, I'm reminded that there's different purposes that a pastor has as he comes with a text of Scripture to bring it to the flock on any particular gathering, any particular morning. At times, I know I want to bring joy. Joy, unspeakable joy. I see the text and I want to have that text come to you and be joy for the people. At other times, I want to bring a ground for comfort. Friends, this is something that we can remember in a season of trial. So I would bring that to you, ground for comfort. At times, I want to bring a call to perseverance, that the times may be rigorous at present. It may be difficult, it may be a season in which you want to give up, but there is ground and a call to perseverance. At other times, I would call us to rest. That that even as we persevere, we persevere not as a people who are striving for something that we do not have already in Christ, but rather we can rest in Christ and what He has done for us. So really, a perseverance is a perseverance of standing firm. There are many reasons why we might gather around a text of Scripture. Each of these times, I'm aware, come to the congregation in a variety of different ways, times of joy, comfort, rest. we each live our lives as households and as a congregation experiencing a variety of seasons that one day a call for joy may be difficult for another person to hear. A call for rest may be difficult for another person to hear. We all are experiencing a variety of the accompanying emotions and needs when we come to a text of scripture. There's another way that I want you to think of how I personally come into a Sunday morning. Uh, I, I'm reminded uh, of of when I first really realized this. I was an ad, at an Acts 29 boot camp, uh, the part of the network that we are a part of in Acts 29, and it was actually at Matt Chandler's church about eight years before he became the president of Acts 29, and he said that when he came to the church that he was serving at in Dallas, Texas, one of the first things that he realized, that, especially because a majority of his congregation were very young, that a large part of his pastoral duty was to prepare his congregation to suffer. They were young. Now, for those of you in this congregation that are older, you know why those who are young need to be prepared to suffer. That A pastor has a business on Sunday morning to attend to, something that we need to bring. And there's a variety of dispositions that I would come into a Sunday morning with. Sometimes I'm aware in coming into a Sunday morning that the message confronts you right where you have been. There are often... These are often messages in which I'm calling us to remember or to rejoice. That we can remember seasons that we have so recently been through as households or even together as a congregation. Other times, I'm aware that the message confronts us right where we are. It's kind of close to home. And these messages are often messages of a challenge or a comfort. And then there are messages that confront where we may be going. And honestly, these are more difficult messages to preach because I don't know the future. I don't want you to hear anything that I would say when I when I come with sort of a disposition of, of this may be where we are going. I don't think it's where we at this particular congregation have been recently or where we are at present, but it's in the Word and we ought to consider it might be where we're going. The scriptures speak of circumstances which, by and large, we, in the place that we presently live, perhaps have not endured. These are often messages of perspective and perhaps preparation. This is Psalm 129 for us today. So let's go to the Lord and ask that he would give us perspective. And that he would prepare us as he would see fit. Lord God, we thank you for your word, that it's comprehensive. Actually sufficient. That your word works in the midst of the congregation. Lord, your word works because it is inspired and authoritative. And it's been preserved for us today. And your word works because your spirit is present among us. Lord, that you have fulfilled everything that is required for the Word, and your Spirit is present to apply to us that grace which is true for the people of God. I pray that you would do this this morning, and that you would give us perspective that we do not have, and that you would prepare us for a season we have not seen, that in all these things we would glorify your great name. I just confess we need help. And so we ask that you would be our helper. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, in the name of our helper. Amen. This Psalm 129, I hope you have it in front of you so you can see the way that it's laid out, so you can see the words that are actually there. The psalm is laid out in two parts with a very clear and compelling hinge in the middle. Okay, The two parts are verses 1 through 3, the first section of the psalm, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, it repeats, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me, plowing furrows in my back. Right? And then, you have the hinge, we'll come back to it in a moment, and then you have the second part of the psalm. Verses 5 through 8. These are the failure of the wicked. This is a prayer for the failure of the Of the wicked, those who have afflicted God's people. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Really, I think the rest of the psalm is just an explanation of what he means by that. May it kind of look like this. The second part of the psalm is a prayer for the failure of the wicked in their ways. The hinge is verse 4. That's why that, that verse deserves a little, a little uh, line to the side, perhaps a star in the corner. I often do this myself when I'm reading the Scriptures. When I find a verse that's a hinge, and often the hinge is a very good news, gospel-laden, what we find about who God is and what He has done, hinge. I put a cross in the margin. Just a reminder, this is a gospel statement that we find throughout Scripture. I think that's verse 4. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. The Lord has done a work. It's a work that is on the foundation of who he is and the way that he is. And he's done that work to bring salvation to the people. So we have two parts and a hinge. The way that we're going to walk through it this morning is we're going to begin with the first part, take a peek at the hinge, and then end with the last part. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 together. It begins with the words, let Israel, or it begins with the words, Great have they afflicted me from my youth, let Israel now say. Now it's interesting that it begins in the singular. This actually isn't terribly common, especially in the Psalms of Ascent. This is a people who are making their journey to the worship of the Lord in Jerusalem. And yet this psalm begins, greatly have they afflicted me, in the singular, from my youth. The sentence is in the singular, and yet all of Israel are called to participate in the song. That seems odd to me. I believe that that, the fact that, that it's put in the singular at the beginning, and then the call is for all of Israel to join in. The song is evidence that the psalm is actually a psalm of corporate affliction and rescue. Let me just make the argument for you for just a moment. I know it just helped me to have perspective on the psalm, to think this through just a little bit. I may be wrong, but I think it holds up. Consider the options. Consider the options for verses 1 through 3. Is it true that all the individuals of Israel have been equally afflicted? Is the psalmist at the beginning saying, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth? I mean, right, guys? It's true of each one of you individually, particularly as well, right? So let all of Israel who have each individually, particularly been afflicted, let us also sing. Do you see what I'm saying? doesn't really hold up really well. Is it true that the community is to identify with the affliction of an individual? It begins, greatly have the afflicted me from my youth. Let all of Israel talk about me and my affliction from my youth. I think that that, again, it doesn't really hold up very well unless the psalm is a psalm that's like a kingly psalm. And so it's speaking of perhaps the king who has been afflicted, and the people are to identify with the king. Or a messianic psalm, that there is some great savior of the people who has been afflicted, and the people are to find in him a sort of mediator, right? But there's not too much of a hint of that in this psalm, so I don't think that that is it. Perhaps, are there such a population of the people able to identify with the affliction of the individual so that it's appropriate to call the whole of the community to the psalm perhaps not every single individual is particularly afflicted and so but but most of them have so let all israel say join in together in the psalm possibly but this last one i think is the most compelling is the singular actually a reference to the corporate unity of zion Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. What if the me, and the reason Israel is called so quickly into the me, is the people together? Greatly have they so afflicted me, Zion. Greatly have they so afflicted me, Israel. Greatly have they so afflicted me, the people of God. Let Israel say, you know it's true. From our youth, we have been afflicted suffered greatly since the inception as a people they suffered when we, they were the called out people in Canaan in the earliest of days they suffered famine and were chased to Egypt in Egypt they found temporary relief and so quickly suffered again even though they were rescued they entered into the wilderness and suffered as God's people as they brought as he brought them to himself, to his worship, they suffered. The people of Israel have been a people who have suffered from their youth. And yet, they, those who bring this affliction, have not prevailed against me. Friends, the church of God throughout history has joined in this same song, has joined with Israel, who has sung, From the earliest inception as a people called out by God, the affliction of our enemies has become a theme of so many of our songs. And so it's right that we as a people who are joined together as a people who are called out by God to know Him and to worship Him, to make approach like the Psalms of Ascent would do, to call us to approach the Lord and identify as a people from our earliest days, who have suffered. And so in the next couple of verses, what are called out is the reality of the suffering. All right? we're, we're given the reality of what it looks like to suffer. We're given really three words, greatly, from my youth, and then plowers upon. My back. Greatly is really a summary statement. The psalm begins with this word. It's repeated twice. Greatly have they afflicted me. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. The affliction is great. And yet, this is so... I mean, I I found it amazing. And yet, the afflictor does not prevail. The affliction is great. And yet, the psalm is a psalm of victory, not affliction. Read the psalm rightly. Look what it says. Greatly have they afflicted me, verse 2, from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. In large part, the psalm is an explanation of how in the world that's possible. How you can in the world, you can be a People who from your infancy as a people have been afflicted over and over and over again and yet the afflictor has not prevailed against me. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 and I wonder when I read this, is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 a reflection on this psalm? We are afflicted in every way. You could just as easily say Greatly have they afflicted me, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Friends, that is incongruency. It's brought alongside. It is in line with the story of the people of God from their inception. The enemy is pressed hard, the afflictions have cut deep, but they have not prevailed against the people of God. Rather, as we'll see, the righteousness of the Lord has prevailed over the enemy. If we want to talk about prevailing, we're not going to, have, we're not going to talk about the afflictor over the people of God. We're going to have to talk about God over the wicked. The passage says it's from my youth. Charles Spurgeon says persecution is the heirloom of Of the church. Think about an heirloom. What do you do with that? You hand it down generation to generation. It's handed down from one generation to the next. Some generations may keep the heirloom in a precious box off to the side and it's not seen very much. But then some generations wear persecution like a jewel. And it shines and it does the work of the Lord among the people of God. And yet they are not. Prevailed against, the Lord will work in the midst of persecution with great effect. The passage continues with a vivid image, verse three: the plowers plowed upon my back; they made long their furrows. See it. If we were singing, you know, if we were singing this right now, David was leading us, and we were singing. You could just say the words and then go on to the chorus. Or you could sit and actually notice what it says. See the image. It's one of the reasons why we don't just put two lines on the screen when we're singing together. It's one of the reasons why we actually put all four lines up there so you can see and have perspective on what we're singing. We should do the same as we sing the psalm together. The plowers plowed upon my back. What does that look like? They made long their furrows. Charles Spurgeon again, he says, they missed not an inch, but went from end to end of the field, meaning to make thorough work of their congenial engagement. Those who laid on the scourge did it with a thoroughness which showed how hearty was their that's someone who's thought on this verse they made long their furrows they plowed to the edges of the field whatever suffering might have been afflicted they afflicted it the image of the psalm from the words greatly have they afflicted me to the plowing of furrows upon the backs of God's people the image is of deep and thorough suffering And affliction. Now, what did you see when you read verse three? When I read this psalm, I cannot help but have in my mind, my mind turns to those who have suffered oppression around the world and especially in our own nation due to the color of their skin, particularly in slavery. There were two images, and we'll come back to the second image that came in my mind at the end of the message. That was the first one. Scourges plowing into the back of those who have suffered under slavery. Some of the images that are the most vivid and vulgar in my mind of a plower upon the back to make long furrows are images that I've learned by examining our own history as a nation, which includes the history of slavery. And here it is, this image that's so descriptive of what has taken place here and in many other places around the world. I said that there are different ways to bring a text to a congregation. This one is complicated because the majority of those in this room, the specifics of the evils of slavery are not a part of our experience in recent history. So why would we talk about it in this room? Well, because for others, it is very much a part of a cultural memory that is present in our community. What is our business as a church? To point our community to Jesus Christ. If we're going to speak, bring good news into that community, perhaps we should know this particular suffering. There are two things that I think are important for all of us today. Two things. Slavery has become a part of our story, a shared story in our community. Even though our present connection to that history, it varies in very great degree. Our present connection is much debated. I'm not talking about our present connection. I'm talking about historical reality. If we live in this nation, we have a history to examine honestly and with integrity. Secondly, because we share this story together, we can learn from what God has done in this story together. We can learn from what God has done. Who is the actor in this story in the psalm? Is it the afflicted? Is it the afflictor who's being highlighted? No. It's the hinge of verse 4. The Lord and his righteousness. And we would do well to ask, has the Lord done anything in the midst of a story that is, is part of our own history Here. One of the great gifts of the righteousness of God, born in the suffering of slavery, is the African-American spiritual. How often do these songs look to the righteousness of God and the refuge of His grace? How often do they sound like psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Notice that the Psalms are also a collection of songs songs born of a variety, of from suffering to rejoicing, and each one bears witness in a unique way to the righteousness of God. That's the point. That's why we would go to them, to see the Lord at work, to see His great character, His great news. So I bring this up for two reasons. If many in this room have difficulty bringing the 3,000-year-old psalm closer into the present, and I'd be honest, for many days as I worked with this psalm, I have a difficulty identifying with this psalm. It's not my story. Like I said, it's not my recent history. It's not my present context. And I don't know if it's in my future. I have difficulty identifying. If this psalm... This psalm that I have difficulty identifying with, perhaps the African-American spirituals and other songs born out of suffering could help us to understand Holy Scripture, both to understand and to sympathize with some of the cultural memory of those who have suffered and to prepare for when such suffering would come our way. Remember, part of the purpose of going to a psalm that doesn't speak from where we've been, doesn't speak to where we are, but speaks to what we may be going into is to give us perspective and to prepare us for perseverance. The second reason why I would bring this up is because I'm concerned that in all of the talk of oppression and oppressors, so much of what takes place in the the, the big Sort of the cultural media, wherever you may find it today, is a bunch of talk about oppression and oppressors, and it doesn't talk about the hinge at all. We're losing sight of what the African-American spirituals themselves cried out for. They included the hinge, and yet we've lost sight of the hinge. They were not songs of a people who were about to rise up and cast off oppression, they were Psalm, songs like Psalm 129. They waited upon the righteousness of the Lord to cut the cords of the wicked. I would draw our attention to a particular spiritual, a song called I'm Troubled in Mind. One website tells the story like this. The spiritual was sung by a former slave known as Mrs. Brown, who learned the song from her father. She said that when... He had been whipped, he would sit on a log outside their cabin and sing it with such pathos that even when his masters heard it, they were moved. I'm troubled in mind. O Jesus, my Savior, on thee I'll depend. When troubles are near me, you'll be my true friend. I'm troubled, I'm troubled, I'm troubled in mind. If Jesus don't help me, I surely will die. When laden with troubles and burdened with grief, to Jesus in secret I'll go for relief. In dark days of bondage to Jesus I prayed to help me to bear it, and he gave me his aid. What a beautiful reflection upon Psalm 129. Church, this song, and hundreds like it were born in the souls and sung from the hearts of brothers and sisters in Christ. What if we could learn something there? They cried out with such simple prayers that echo so much of the songs. I'm severely convicted that if Psalm 129 really has been the story of the church in the past, a story that by and large I am disconnected from, we would do well to give attention today to slaves and refugees wherever we may find them, that we might prepare the church for whatever may come ahead. Perhaps those today or recently who have suffered might give us perspective as well as give us preparation that we may very well need. In this way, we who have so little experience of those who have plowed upon our back. I, I struggled with this psalm, and perhaps you can do the work of this. And I would encourage you, too, to ask the question, Lord, where have they plowed on my back? I had a very difficult time contextualizing that to my life and thinking about the congregation. Perhaps, if we have little experience of that, we might become more acquainted with this psalm by becoming acquainted with the church that has gone before us, and the church that is far from us today. I, I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon series, I mentioned J, James K.A. Smith, in a book that I was reading by him on, on uh, the, the life and teaching of St. Augustine. And in that book, I became convicted that one of the things that we should do, if we are a pilgrim people, then a pilgrim people sounds so nice. They sound like a people just get together, get all their belongings together, and make a trip. Today, we think of a pilgrim people as a people who might hop in a plane, show up in a nice airport, grab their suitcases, and go to where they're going, right? But so often in history, a pilgrim people have actually been more like a refugee people. If you remember in our first psalm, a people who are without a home and are journeying to a place we have not yet seen, the kingdom of God himself, where he dwells in glory and to which he has promised to bring us, but we haven't seen it and we aren't there yet. Perhaps one of the things that we could do that would better give us perspective and preparation is pay attention to the slave and the refugee. and we could learn together. But that's not the point. The point of the psalm is really what the slave and the refugee throughout history have so often pointed us to, which is not to the slave or the refugee, but to the Lord. Verse three. The, verse four, "The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords. Of the wicked. The Lord is righteous. This section that follows is a plea that this would always be the case. Lord, may you be the one who cuts the cords of the wicked according to the righteousness of the Lord alone, not the plight of the afflicted, but according to the righteousness of God Himself. May the wicked never prevail in their wickedness. Compare the Lord with those who afflict the people. The oppressor is fully and lustily unrighteous. And his unrighteous end to end in his plowing in the field leaves no unrighteousness uncovered. But the Lord is righteous, thoroughly faithful, thoroughly good, thoroughly dependable from end to end of the field. Remember the words that often describe the covenant of God. Wherever you find the covenant of God, you find the words steadfast love and mercy. This is our God. This is the righteousness of our God. This is the way that He has chosen to reveal Himself among a people that He has called by His name with steadfast love and mercy. He, the Lord, is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. These are the words at the beginning of the song of Moses. A song of Moses. Moses, so recently, by grace, called to identify with the people who were enslaved. He wrote this song, so recently being enslaved. Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Notice he makes no claims for the people. If you read the whole of the psalm, actually the people are far from just. The people are far from righteous. The people are far from upright. That's not why they were rescued. They were rescued because the Lord is perfect, and all his ways are just. And the psalm ends, this Deuteronomy, the song of Moses ends this way. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Friends, that's Psalm 129. This is the perspective that I want you to see. It's not because of the depth of the affliction of the afflicted that the people are saved. Neither is it because they have a particular value or goodness innate of themselves. This is a corrective also in our present culture. In all the talking of the, the oppressor and the oppressed, it's as though being oppressed makes you righteous. That's not the perspective of the Scriptures. It is because of the righteousness of Of the Lord Himself, that He rescues those who bear His name. The turning point of the psalm is not the word affliction. Affliction alone does not qualify a people for redemption. The psalm turns on the word righteous. The Lord is righteous. The basis of rescue of the afflicted is the righteousness of God. Today, we have often mistaken the notion that the righteous are the afflicted. The righteous is the Lord. Our hope, the hope of all peoples, is found in the righteousness of the Lord. Do we trust in Him? Do we trust in the promises of God? Do we know the nature of His steadfast love and Mercy. Our business must be to consider the promises of God. And as we consider the promises of God, we do well to search and explore who God is. What is the redemption that He has promised? Who has He promised to redeem? What does it look like to be a people who cry out to Him? The Lord will be sure and righteous to fulfill His redemption according to His promise. May we seek it and know it. That's where the psalm turns. It turns in verse 4 on the righteousness of the Lord who cuts the bonds or the cords of the wicked. And then he enters into the, stay with me now, okay? I promise I'll define it. The imprecatory requests. All right, I know a couple of you are probably with me. Others just said, nope, I'm not going to listen. He said a big word. Stay with me for just a second. The image of the second half of the prayer is simple. No fruitfulness for unfaithfulness. It is a cry, Lord, may there be no fruitfulness for unfaithfulness. Imprecatory. The the imprecatory psalms, there are many of them, are psalms that call out for divine vengeance upon the enemies of God. The imprecatory psalms are psalms like what we see in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Look at the four imprecatory requests, the requests for divine vengeance, the requests for God to intervene in the ways of the wicked. How do you pray that God would intervene in the ways of the wicked? Okay? Well, the first thing that you see is verse 5. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. May they be put to shame and turned backward we'll look at it more in a moment but that's the first request the second request let them be like grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up i mean it shows up but it has no soil and it's just going to be washed away at the first rain and if it even survives the sun may they wither like grass on the housetop third request with which the reaper does not fill his hand and the binder of sheaves his arms There's nothing to reap or bind. Whatever it is that the wicked do, may there be no fruitfulness from their wickedness. That's how you pray as it regards the wicked. They would sow, but when the reaper and the binder come, there will be no harvest, Lord. If we wonder why the psalmist does not want them to reap... Consider what are the fruits of what they 've sown they 've sown to wickedness, what do they desire to reap the fruit of wickedness, and what do we want to grow up? Well, the fruit of righteousness. We want to, the fruit of the righteousness of the Lord to grow up, and then for there to be no fruitfulness from the sowings of the wicked and finally, in the last verse, may there be no blessing. From the Lord for them. It's an interesting one. We'll come back to it in just a moment. Verse five, may they be put to shame and turned backward. I think of last week's Psalm, Psalm 127. In Psalm 127, it begins like this Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. In other words, the prayer is, Lord, may their labors be turned to shame. May it be a vain labor that the wicked seek to build the house of wickedness. Because you don't build those kind of houses, Lord. You're righteous. May their house not be established. May their city not be watched. May their household not be fruitful. Not the household of wickedness. Don't build their house, their city, their family. Charles Spurgeon puts it like this. We desire their welfare as men but their downfall as traitors. Let their conspiracies be confounded. Their policies be turned back. How can we wish prosperity to those who would destroy that which is dearest to our hearts? I, I think I could... Don't tell Spurgeon I did this, but I'm going to correct him. Dearest to the hearts of the Lord. Dearest to the heart of the Lord's righteousness. Righteousness. May we not pray for the prosperity of the wicked. I find this so helpful. This present age is so flippant that if a man loves the Savior, he's styled a fanatic. And if he hates the powers of evil, he's named a bigot. I mean, doesn't the Bible say, bless and do not curse? We are not to bless wickedness. We are to seek that the Lord would bless by a change of the wicked man, to faith. But we're to curse wickedness, whether we find it in our own heart or in another. Not bless it. The psalm ought to recondition, inform our hearts as it regards the wicked. May the way of the wicked not prosper. We are right to pray. May the way of the wicked be put to shame and turned backward in its way. Verses 6 and 7 are an image of, of someone sowing. And when they're sowing, they're sowing in their way. They're sowing the seed of their way. They're sowing the seed of wickedness. And we're praying that they would sow in tears, but they would not reap with joy. We're praying that they would sow and nothing would grow up from the ways of wickedness. May there never be a harvest. For wickedness. One of the reasons why I press into that so hard is I read a number of commentaries this week and a few uh, sermons and, and looking at this and, and the person just did gymnastics to excuse that the person was just expressing a moment of anger. The psalmist was, was just sort of venting for a moment where only the Lord could hear. No. <laughs> it says at the beginning, let all of Israel say, This is a good psalm. This is a good demeanor to walk in as it regards wickedness. May the wicked be turned in his way and be found in his folly. It even goes to the withholding of the blessing of the Lord. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. That image, you can go to it, you can find it in Ruth and elsewhere, is where the the reapers and the binders were out in the field and they're gathering their harvest. And as they do so, those who pass by say, blessed be you in the name of the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord and the prospering that He has brought. May that not be for the wicked. May they be sorrowful in the turning of their wicked ways to ashes. If there is a warning in this psalm, it's not a warning not to pray like this. It's a warning to consider, may we not be found among those who oppress. May we not be found to be among those who sow in wicked ways. And where we do, we would be right to say, Lord, cause there to be no fruitfulness there. May there be nothing that grows from my own wickedness that it might spread in my heart and in my community. Lord God, root it out. Show me your righteous way. Cause me to plant in the fruit of the Spirit, not in the fruit of the There is a warning in this passage. And it's a warning for you and I not to presume who we are in Psalm 129. As you look at all the peoples of the earth, we have people that God has called by his name. But when it comes to the individual, sometimes it's hard to discern. I mean, is this a person so afflicted and, and the Lord is righteous and will rescue? Is this a, a person who is walking in wickedness? And the reason why is our hearts are fickle. We are, we are too, mi- too mind, double-minded in our ways and our desires. At times, it would be right for someone to pray against what we are sowing, and at other times... It would be right to rejoice in the fruit of the righteousness of the Lord in our hearts. It's confusing. But there is one about whom there is no confusion. There is no double-mindedness. There is only righteousness. I would ask you, what furrows did they plow into the back of the Savior? I told you earlier that there were two images that came to my mind. It's the whip that plowed into the back of the slave and the whip that plowed in the back of our Redeemer. What time in his life was he not afflicted? Is it not right to say greatly have they afflicted him from his youth? Even from his youth, he was chased from his place of birth, took refuge in the oppressor's land in Egypt, In his ministry, he was chased from town to town to town. And finally, making his way to Jerusalem to worship the Father and walk in obedience, he was arrested unjustly. He was flogged brutally. What inch of skin did they leave untouched? The furrows went from edge to edge. What part of Jesus' character was not maligned and Abused? What suffering did he not suffer? And he was hung shamefully until dead. But they did not prevail against him. You can't go any further in your affliction than the affliction that Jesus suffered. And yet, the affliction of the wicked did not prevail against Him. Why? Because the Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. And right in that, He's loosing the bond of the wicked. In the resurrection, their wickedness is turned to shame. There's no reaping, no binding, no fruitfulness for those who crucified the Saviour. But friends, all of this is not because any person in the whole story was righteous. The Lord was raised because of the righteousness of the Lord alone. The Lord spoke a word of blessing. And grace that turns all affliction, all wickedness on its head. The righteous one pronounced a blessing on the afflicted that they might be forgiven. Father Forgive them, said the afflicted, the righteous, the one who turns the ways of the wicked on their head. Here we learn the righteousness of the Lord, revealed in stunning clarity that we ought not have a difficulty identifying with. He would not bless their wickedness who would not allow the way of the wicked to bear fruit, he stopped it in its tracks and rose from the dead. But the Lord was sowing another seed, and it bears fruit in the furrows of his own stripes. We ought to consider the sufferings of the afflicted one, the way that he turns the wickedness on its head And we confess, it turns out, that there is none righteous. There is none who is deserving of what the Lord has accomplished. The Lord alone is righteous. Friends, we are counted as those who are saved by the righteousness of the Lord. Only those who cling cling to redeeming grace. I would ask you, That in all of our consideration, I would ask you to take it seriously, but above all things what I would ask you to consider is that it is by his wounds that we have been healed. It is by his affliction that even the wicked might be redeemed. That we might consider the sufferings of our Christ. We might consider the sufferings of our Savior, the victory of His resurrection, and cling to that gospel hope alone. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, today we would see that in this psalm, we're all over the place. There are some things that we've suffered, but there's a great deal of wickedness that we've brought to the land, to other people, even to ourselves and certainly to the glory of your name, Lord, we are a people in need of redemption. I thank you, Lord, that you drink the cup to its fullest. So then even we who were wicked might be counted righteous with the Lord, forgiven, redeemed, and made new. I pray that this would become our story, this would become our song as we search your word, as we search your gospel good news. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.